What's up, you creeps? It's your host, Brittany, and my lovely co-host, Kylo, the bad piggy himself. He is a Frenchton puppy, and he kind of just hangs out with me while I bring you guys these true crime stories. So thank you for joining us today, and I just got a question. Are you horror-obsessed like me? You know, give me a horror movie and I'm happy. Happy as a clam. I feel like everyone loves the monster or the killer, though, and for me, it's a little different. I'm obsessed with the final girl. You know, the last girl standing. Because if you know anything about horror movies, you know that there are rules. There are rules to a horror movie, and one of them is that you have to be a girl in order to survive. Sorry, guys, but us girls just rule. No, I'm kidding. We love you, too. But the final girl is important. She's a symbol of feminine strength. She's not always innocent, but she still comes out on top. She comes out a hero. My favorite part about horror movies is this character's fight for survival. How does she get out of such a horrible situation? How does she persevere while running away from a masked lunatic wielding a chainsaw? It's fascinating to me. And in my life while growing up as a kid, I don't know about you guys, but these final girls were the closest things I had to superheroes. Because when I was younger, Wonder Woman may have dominated the female heroine platform, which is amazing because Wonder Woman's badass and Diana Prince is my girl. I wish I was her. But besides her... Captain Marvel, Black Widow, they weren't as mainstream as they are today. Wonder Woman was really the only person you ever heard of um, when it came to superheroes and female superheroes. So as I grew up and as I watched horror movies, which I did watch them from, you know, a young age, which might explain a lot. um, I developed this, um, you know, this interest in the final girl in horror movies. I looked up to them. So it left me with Laurie Strode from Halloween the bombest final girl out there, of course, Alice from Friday the 13th, and of course, super babe Sydney Prescott from the movie Scream. Wes Craven's Scream is out of this world slasher fun. I love it. It has everything you need in a horror movie. Classic Ghostface goes after Sydney Prescott, and they have this ultimate rivalry, and it's con- it's just back and forth tit for tat. It's like cat and mouse. So seriously, if you haven't watched it, you must, because there there's a lot of humor in it as well. And it still gets those scares in there. So be sure to add it to your Halloween watch list, whether you saw it or not. I mean, tis the season. Time to get on all the horror fun, even though I do that every year. But yeah, it's always good to revisit good movies. So I may be a super fan of this movie, but there are two not-so-nice individuals who are, well, extreme fans. Eh, They're obsessive fans, and I guess you could call them uh, killer fans, if you will. So I hope you guys are ready to hear this true crime case, and it's about two horror-obsessed kids. How horribly fantastic. Notice the sarcasm. So come on in, get cozy, go grab your favorite fall beverage. Maybe it's a hard cider. Maybe it's a Starbucks pumpkin spice latte. I don't know what else it could be, but maybe you need a shot of whiskey to get you through this case. Because these stories that I tell you are not for the faint of heart. Thanks for listening. As always, my lovely friends, listener discretion is advised. This story does not have a happy ending, and we are discussing true crime here. Um, that's what you guys are here to listen to. And this is what I'm here to talk to you about. So 
just be aware that viewer discretion is heavily advised. Um, Moving forward, this episode is the first episode of Ghoultober. So if you guys have been looking at my posts or my Instagram, Facebook, you'll know that every week during the month of October, I'll be releasing two cases. So one on Monday, one on Friday, both released at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you're interested in crimes that were inspired by horror films, urban legends, creepypastas, or that were actually committed on Halloween night or Hallow's Eve, definitely check out Ghoultober because I'm going to be putting out a lot of content. So get ready. I'm excited about it. And I hope you guys are interested in these stories and I hope that you will share them. And, you know, there's a lot of important themes behind these cases. There's a lot of lessons to be learned and it's important that we hear about them. I know it is dark material and subject matter, but at the end of the day, there's always a lesson to be learned here. And it's to stay safe. It's to stay cautious and aware of your surroundings and aware of who you're befriending. Sometimes, you know, we're not so lucky and we don't see red flags that we should. But maybe just listening to these stories will make you just a little more hypervigilant. Um, I don't want to say to the extent where you're freaking out to leave your house or anything like that, but just to be a little more safe in your day-to-day life. So without further ado, let's get to it. I'm going to be bringing you to Pocatello, Idaho today, and we're talking about Cassie Jo Stodart. Lord, I hope I pronounced her last name wrong. I mean, oh my God, Lord, I hope I pronounced her last name right. But she was a pretty kind and social 16-year-old girl. And I know, I know, we've ho- we've heard these things over and over again when we're talking about a tra- tragedy. But legitimately, Cassie seemed to be sweet as can be and a friend to everyone. She made friends with just about anyone. She was accepting of others. She was welcoming. And unfortunately, she would befriend two people who were absolutely not worthy of her friendship. Cassie's Friday turned out just like any other Friday. The school week came to an end, so the relief that comes with getting out of school on a Friday afternoon was heavily setting in. And this weekend was to be more fun than usual because Cassie was going to house sit for her aunt, and her aunt had a big house. It was a nice house. She was excited to experience this sense of independence for the weekend. And she was allowed to invite her boyfriend, Matt, over. So, of course, she was excited to spend alone time with him as well. The evening would come, and Matt would arrive at the house. He would settle in and they would get cozy, as most teens do, and of course, there was kissing, there was cuddling, and they weren't paying so much attention to the movie that they were supposedly, quote-unquote, air quotes, heavily air quotes, watching. And then there was a knock on the door. Now, this part of the story gets a little confusing because while researching, I found two different accounts of the story describing how Brian Draper and Tori Admick Lord, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, too. I'm not really sure. But how Brian and Tori ended up barging their way into Cassie's romantic evening. One account says that Matt invited them over. Um, He was friends with Brian and Tori, and he told the boys that there was going to be a party. So they knocked on the door. Cassie opens the door, and she goes, what the hell are you guys doing here? And Matt's all like, hey, bro, what's up? Yo, thanks for coming. And evidently, my friends, there was in fact no party. So Brian and Tori are a little taken back, but they're, you know, they're all friends. So that's it. They get together and they watch a movie and that's just one account. Now, the other recount 
of this story is that Cassie slipped up and mentioned to Brian and Tori that she was going to be house sitting alone at her aunt's house over the weekend. Brian and Tori were like, oh, that's cool. Can we come over too? And she was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Because like I said, they were all friends. So regardless, all of them were friends. Brian and Tori showed up to the house. The teens sat down and they watched Kill Bill Volume 2. And by the way, they're all 16 years old, just to get that straight. So by 10 o'clock, Brian and Tori were like, peace, we got to get out of here. It's getting late. And we're kind of bored. And Matt's mom was coming to pick him up at 11. So the couple still had time to hang out when Brian and Tori left. So when Brian and Tori left, they turned on another movie. They cuddled. And 15-ish minutes into the movie or so, the power goes out. A deep fear sinks into both Cassie and Matt's chest. Cassie's like, what the fuck happened to the power? Matt's confused. He doesn't know what to say. And then he's like, let me go check the breaker box. I fixed it at my house with my dad, so I could probably figure this one out. But before he goes to check, the power comes back on. By this point, a a car honks outside, and it's Matt's mom. Knowing that Cassie is scared, he runs outside to ask his mom if it's okay that he spends the night. He explains what happened and that the power just went out. Cassie's a little spooked, and obviously mom is no fool, and she's like, absolutely not. You're not sleeping over. Mom goes on to say, tell you what, Cassie could come sleep at our house. So Matt runs inside to tell her. Cassie says, no, I can't. I have a responsibility to watch the house. My aunt is paying me. I can't just leave. Matt's like, okay, are you sure? And Cassie says, yeah, I'm sure. The goodnights are exchanged and he leaves. Cassie is alone. And girl, let me tell you, she should have gone with her boo, but, you know, who would have known what was to come? Who would have freaking known? I just, I again, this is one of those... One of those cases where I just wish I could go back in time and be like, girl, go on and get, get in there with your boo and go home with him. Well, a little while later, Cassie's watching TV when you guessed it, the power goes out. Being scared, she gets up to go see if she can figure out what the problem is, and I'm sure she feels uneasy while walking through this dark house. She's brave. I never would have gone to check. I wouldn't have moved. Maybe I'm just a chicken shit. But maybe I'm sort of right for not going to check. I don't really know. But it's not fair what happens next. I can't imagine the terror Cassie must have felt. Two masked individuals jump out at Cassie and begin stabbing her. The attack is gruesome. There's blood everywhere. And unfortunately, in their own way, horror movies kind of have fairy tale endings because usually someone survives. But for Cassie, she doesn't get to be a final girl. She isn't to live a horror movie fairy tale where she's the lone survivor. It's just fucked up because even horror movies make you believe that if you're a good person, if you do the right thing, you'll make it. And well, folks, that's just not always the case. Cassie was stabbed a total of 30 times, 12 of which were fatal wounds. And can you guess who murdered her? Well, I'm impatient. And if you didn't guess, it was Brian and Tori. So so who are these guys and why Cassie? Why did they do this? She was kind. She was intelligent. She was their friend. So fucking why? We're going to have to backtrack. Remember when I told you Cassie was welcoming of everyone? She was friends with anyone? Well, Cassie may have been popular, but it didn't stop her from befriending the quiet boys who people considered to be freaks or weirdos. To Cassie, Brian and Tori were just different. They liked horror movies. They liked video games. They were a little nerdy. And so what? They were nice and they all got along. And Matt liked them too. So she was friends with Brian and Tori and so was Matt. It was like, you know, a win-win. 
So wait, I know what you're thinking. They were friends with Cassie? They murdered their friend? Yep, you heard it here, folks, because clearly they're not human. Or should I say they're not humane? They can't completely be humane. They can't be, I don't know, I just feel like they're not human. We can get technical, but to me, if you have the ability to murder someone, to take a life in a manner like this, then you're not human. You're not fully human, at least. Clearly, there's something in you that's lacking human decency. There's something much more sinister within you if you're able to do what these two did. You're missing some component somewhere. Clearly, these boys had much darker intentions than just being Cassie's weird friends. As I researched, I found out some information about Brian and Tori. Brian was definitely crushing on Cassie and crushing hard. A lot of people speculate that he was upset Cassie didn't like him back and that he was jealous of Matt. They're probably right. Brian was adopted. He didn't know anything about his birth mother or father. In school, Brian was withdrawn and didn't have many friends. Tori was his best friend and the boys both loved film. Brian grew obsessed with the Columbine school shooting because the shooters knew what it meant to be an outsider. Brian was creating a script based on the Columbine shooting. He wanted to make it into a movie. As for Tori, he loved film from an early age and he was given his very first camera when he was 11. Tori and his little brother would make their very own horror movies. So you see, these boys had a lot in common. They loved filming, they wrote scripts, and they had a sick love for horror movies. Both boys were infatuated with Wes Craven's Scream. They often referenced it in their day-to-day lives. They kind of lived by what the bad guy lived by, if that makes sense. They wanted notoriety at the end of the day. They wanted to become famous serial Well, Tori mostly wanted to become a famous serial killer. Brian just wanted to be seen. Thus, the perfect storm was forming, and boy, was it destructive. Brian and Tori had planned Cassie's murder. It was point-blank premeditated. They even made a hit list, and they were planning to kill multiple classmates. The first two on the list happened to be Cassie and Matt. They would get the two alone, and when they found out about this house-sitting situation, the plan was set in motion. It was the perfect opportunity for them to become famous killers. The two boys sickly documented everything. Using Tori's camera, they filmed the murder plot in their own school library. They would go on about how they were going to kill Cassie and how Cassie just had to die. She was just too perfect. So that's what they said, and that's what they believed. And to them, they were going to be notorious. Everyone at school would know their names. Hell, everyone in the town and the country would know their names. So let's go back to this horrific night. Right back to when Brian and Tori leave Matt and Cassie. Before the boys left and while they were all hanging out, Brian wandered off and he unlocked the back door. This is how both him and Tori would get back into the house later. When these two boys, if you want to call them that, had left, they returned to Tori's car. They would then go back to carry out their plan. They cut the power and they knew they had both Cassie and Matt where they wanted him, wanted them. But a car pulled up to the house. They turned the power on. It was Matt's mom. She was there to pick him up. And if only Cassie just left with him. At this point, the boys knew Cassie would be alone. They saw Matt get in the car and leave. As they had time to think, they decided to go and purchase movie tickets. This way, they had an alibi. Even though Matt had left, Cassie would have to do, you know. She would have to be the only one to get killed that night. They purchased tickets to see Holes. Obviously, they never stayed for the movie, and they, when they returned to Cassie's aunt's house, they had masks on, 
They had their knives, and their sick, twisted fun was about to begin. They went inside and they cut the power. They taunted her. Wearing their masks and wielding their knives, they, well, they killed her. They later went to Black Rock Canyon, a park nearby, so they could burn the incriminating evidence. But they did not destroy the tape they made. Um, the tape had everything documented on it, and miraculously, the tape survived. To me, I feel like this is Cassie. I feel like, you know, I'm not a very spiritual person, but how else do you explain a VCR tape not being burned to ash? I don't know. I just think there's some other forces at work here, but maybe I'm just looking for meaning and non-meaningful things. But this tape, this was the evidence that would later prove their guilt. On that Sunday, Tori hung out with Matt, and how sick is that? He just killed his friend's girlfriend on Friday, and he's able to just casually hang out. No. No, 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 no. Not okay. Not okay. That whole day, Matt was worrying about Cassie. He hadn't heard from her since Friday. He kept trying to get in touch with her, and nothing. Of course, Tori is sitting there knowing exactly why Matt can't reach Cassie. Soon, Cassie's aunt, uncle, and cousin would return home. Her cousin would be the first to see her lifeless body laying in a pool of her own blood. Her cousin screamed. She let out the coldest shriek. And before you knew it, the aunt and uncle laid their eyes on something that they will never be able to forget. Obviously, they called the police and Cassie's mom. Could you imagine having to break the news? It's just so disturbing because it's your niece. And you have to tell your sister that she no longer has a child. How fucking horrible. Cassie's mom is obviously stunned and she immediately feels guilty. She hadn't talked to her daughter since Friday. Cassie was constantly looking to be treated like an adult, and that Saturday, Cassie's mom decided not to contact her because she was trying to give her daughter that freedom and that independence. Cassie's constant complaint was, Mom, stop always checking up on me. Can't you just trust me? Of course, Cassie just didn't understand that moms will be moms, and they just care about their kids. Her mom felt so guilty because Cassie had been there dead for over 24 hours laying in her own blood. Of course she couldn't have known. It's just, I couldn't imagine receiving news like that. Obviously, an investigation begins immediately. And of course, the boyfriend, Matt, is spoken to first. And when he's told what happened to Cassie, he doesn't really react. He's, I don't know if he's just experiencing pure shock, but from what I researched, it just wasn't what the authorities expected to see or what they were used to seeing when somebody was just given horrible information like that, especially of their own girlfriend. So while questioning Matt, they realized that he, you know, he didn't take part in the murder. And while talking to him, they found out that Brian and Tori were present the last night that Matt had heard from or saw Cassie. Brian and Tori are brought in for questioning and the boys waived their Miranda rights for whatever reason. They spoke to the investigators and in their first interviews, they both denied any involvement they said they went to the movies and invest investigators asked Brian, what movie did you guys see and what was it about? Brian told them it was a scary movie and he couldn't remember the name. What a freaking idiot. Clearly Holes isn't a horror movie. So come on, guy. I don't know how he didn't even look to see what this movie was about or get the name straight, but whatever. So the police understandably didn't believe him because you don't you don't know the name of the movie you saw. And you don't even know the genre. Meanwhile, there's tickets to show what you went and saw. So it's just a crock of shit. Brian then changed his story and said they were out robbing cars for fun. 
Okay, why in the hell would you change your story to car robbery? I just, I can't. So police immediately knew that this was a lie, too. The cop was getting mad, and Brian started crying when the officer brought up that Cassie was savagely murdered. Brian continually just denied the murdering Cassie. He told the officer that Tori had no involvement either. Meanwhile, Tori was being questioned in another room, and he was calm, cool, and collected. I don't know about you guys, but I think I see who the ringleader is here. Tori was showing absolutely no emotion and no concern for the tragedy that was just presented to him. Whereas Brian is slowly cracking. The boys were let go that day. Brian was brought in for a polygraph test a few days later, and he sat with his parents and police. And, well, he broke. He cracked. He was hysterically crying, and he admitted that Tori stabbed Cassie and that he just watched. Brian told detectives where they dumped the evidence, and he was arrested. Tori tried denying everything, and his story was crumbling. He claimed they never left the Stoddart home and that they hung out and left the next morning. Yet a witness placed Tori at a convenience store. So what was it, Tori? So the cops were like, why are you lying? Tori then told the officers that they went to go get matches for Brian's cigarettes, and then they hung out and smoked at Black Rock Canyon. Then they took him by surprise, and they told Tori that you'll never believe what we recovered from Black Rock Canyon. How odd. And they made him aware of all the evidence that was found. Tori asked to speak to an attorney immediately. The officer stopped questioning and he gave Tori and his father a minute to speak in private. And we don't really know what was said between them. And then Tori was arrested. So the evidence was collected and boy, they tried to get rid of a lot of shit. So what was there? Well, let's see. Two dagger style knives with sheaths. A silver and black handled knife with a smooth and non-serrated blade. A folding knife with a silver blade and back handle, which is similar to a survival knife. I guess that's how you could put it. And the portion of the blade nearest to the hilt was serrated. So one non-serrated blade and one serrated blade. A homemade Sony videotape. A box of stick matches. A melted brown bottle of hydrogen peroxide. A partially burned notebook a partially melted multicolored mask, a red and white mask, a pair of black boots, a single black glove, a pair of black puma gloves, a pair of blue latex gloves, a pair of fingerless black athletic works gloves, a black Calvin Klein dress shirt, and a black Hagger shirt. Clearly, they did not do a good job at getting rid of this evidence. And you know what? Like I said, I think there's other powers higher beyond our understanding that we're at work there because... All of this evidence is what was going to throw them in jail. Thank God. So investigators watched the tape, and it wasn't in chronological order. Um, I would play the tape for you guys, but I'm still trying to navigate how to do that. On my last episode, Game Over, I provided that great 999 clip, and my uh, computer got a virus, and I almost lost everything. So until I figure out how to go about that, I'm going to give it to you verbatim. Not the whole entire thing, but... Um, I'll try and get that information up on my Instagram or in the show notes of the exact conversations that were had, but in the video, in the first video that I saw anyway, you know, it's Brian and Tori in the library and they're talking about how Cassie has to be the one to die and, you know, sorry, Cassie, we're going to have to make sacrifices and you're it. 
she's just too perfect. And they're already apologizing to Cassie's mom on video. Like, sorry, when you see this Cassie's mom, your daughter's just too damn perfect and she has to go. So it's a sacrifice, you know, we just have to make. And they're plotting the demise of Cassie. Then the second video is right after they kill Cassie. And it, it just makes the hair on my neck and my arm stand up what they say. What they said in there was in the video was just so callous and so disgusting. Honestly, you're, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't go find the video on YouTube because just the fact that two people can be like this, it was like they were amped up on drugs. Like the adrenaline that must have been running through their bodies. You know, Brian was like, I did it. I just killed Cassie. Oh my God. I stabbed her and I watched her die basically. And, you know, Tori's kind of quiet. And then he's like, man, we just, you just got to get your story straight and everything like that. We have to get the story straight. So calm down, relax. So obviously it's kind of evident that Tori, um, knows the complex nature of what they just did and the consequences that are probably going to come with it if they don't both stick to a story. And then I saw another video, and this video was pretty gross, too. It was on their way driving to Cassie's aunt's house, and they're talking about how they're so excited to commit murder. They mentioned the movie Scream. Um, I forget which one of them, but I, it might have been Tori. He says a quote from Scream, and Brian's like, oh, yeah, what movie is that from, you know? Um, they talk about some music they listen to, Led Zeppelin, and stuff like that, and it's just like creepy and they start to get into the conversation about how they can't wait to kill Cassie. And Tori goes to the extent of saying the thought of killing her is just making me so horny, which that's fucking disgusting. Okay. I know like there are disturbed people out there, but it's just, it's not human. I don't know what it is. I guess you could say it's evil. I guess that's our word we put on it because we don't really know what it is, but that's what it is. So they're eerie. These clips are eerie for a multitude of reasons, but I just hated the excitement in Brian's voice. And when Tori exclaims that talking about killing makes him horny, I'm just deeply disturbed by it all. It's a sign of sadistic, like a sadistic individual who gets off on harming others. And that's an extremely dangerous person. The words from these boys made my stomach turn. And even talking about it, the hair is standing up on my arms. Eventually, the boys went to court, and at trial, the jury, the jury heard extensive forensic testimony documenting and analyzing Cassie's wounds. 30 knife-related wounds were documented on her body, and 12 of which were potentially fatal. A forensic pathologist stated that there were at least two knives used, one with a serrated blade and one with a non-serrated blade. Cassie was stabbed with a non-serrated blade in the left ventricle of her heart, and this was said to be a very fatal laceration and probably the most fatal laceration. The jury found Tori and Brian guilty of both conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and first-degree murder. They were both sentenced for life without parole. They received adult sentences despite their age of 16 year years old, and honestly, I have mentioned in my other videos that, you know, I am working towards a psychology degree. I'm going for my master's right now. And I try to wrap my mind around things like this, but I do have to say, I agree. Like, I agree that they were sentenced as adults. Like it was the first murder they committed, but I just think that they're a danger to themselves and society. 
I don't know if rehabilitation would help them. I don't know if they'll ever fully understand just how horrible what they did was. And I think given the opportunity, they probably would commit murder again. But I mean, we'll never truly know. And, you know, to this day, both boys continue to point blame at each other. Tori's parents 100% believe he's innocent. It's clear that he's not. Tori definitely worries me more so than Brian. The fact that he remained calm throughout this whole entire thing, throughout questioning in the videos where he's saying like, you know, dude, come on, calm down. We need to, we need to get our story straight. Um, in court and like in countless interviews I've watched of him, he just, it, there's like nothing behind his eyes. Like it's just dark. And he knew the extent of trouble that they were in and he was calculate calculated and he wanted to be sure that they never got caught. Whereas in recent documentaries, Brian admits to what he did and he continues to live in unbearable sorrow for it. And whether he really does or doesn't, who knows, but in the interviews, he is pretty hysterical. He can't even like formulate a full sentence without stuttering. He, you can see it in his face that he's just disgusted with himself. But would you believe this? Tori actually sought post-conviction relief stating that he had ineffective assistance of counsel that his sentence was cruel and unusual punishment. So someone please show this boy the autopsy photos of Cassie Joe again. Maybe that will refresh this little shit's memory. Because he butchered her. He helped butcher her. What a disgrace. Like, the audacity. Trust me, I get it. You're 16. You claim you made a mistake. Maybe one could argue that your brain's not fully developed yet. You're, you're 16. But here's the thing, boys. If your brain was too underdeveloped, premeditation would have been a little difficult for you. If your brain was so adolescent, you wouldn't have understood the severity of your actions. And guess what? Especially Tori. Your little homemade video shows that you understand exactly what you were doing. And now you're using this moment to say, I was young and I was dumb. I deserve freedom. No, Tori. That shows just how callous you are and that you didn't and you never will give a shit about Cassie Joe. You still fail to see the irrevocable damage you made for her and her family. And let's not forget you were actually sexually aroused by the thought of killing someone. And just a tidbit, I have no remorse for Brian, but I can say at least he admitted to what he had done and he knows he deserves the punishment that he received. So I'm going to leave links to some of the interviews of Brian and Tori in the show, no show notes in case you guys want to watch, but you'll see that Brian gets tripped up on his words and he just seems extremely upset. He could be faking it, but at least he seems to have a human emotion and reaction after having these years to think about what he did. And I'm glad it haunts him. Truly, I am. Whereas when you see Tori in his interviews, he's smiley. He talks about his mom reminding him to brush his teeth and to take care of himself. He's a narcissist. Maybe he thought that speaking about these little day-to-day -day normalcies, he would become relatable to the public or something. Like, oh, maybe I'll come across as an innocent teen. If anything, it made me more certain of his guilt. But you guys decide for yourself. But worse than Tori, his parents. They are in so much denial, it's disgusting. They're convinced Cassie was... Oh, I'm sorry. They're convinced Brian was solely responsible for Cassie's murder. They call him a good boy and that he just would never do something like that. And okay, Mom, but what does the evidence show? I guess nothing. I guess it doesn't matter to her. And trust me, I get it. No one wants to blame their kid for a murder or think that they're capable of something so horrific. But evidence is evidence and it's there. 
and sorry, mom and dad, sorry, but your denial is not going to get you anywhere. Your son did something horrific and he could lie till he's blue in the face, but just his cold, callous nature screams volumes. So other than that, you know, Cassie's mom did see all the video footage of everything and I just feel terrible for her and her family. Her aunt and uncle's marriage ended up failing a few years after this. They couldn't live in that home anymore. It was their dream home. They described it to be their dream home. They worked towards it, their whole relationship, and they just couldn't stomach being there, understandably, because their, their niece was murdered there. So it's just like this domino effect that the fact that Tori doesn't understand what he did to this family, their marriage ended. Their daughter tried committing suicide multiple times because she just cannot get the image of her cousin out of her head. She has to live with that for the rest of her life and she doesn't deserve it. Um, it just, I'm just disgusted by the whole thing, you know, and quite frankly, I hope they never get out. If they're rehabilitated, God bless, good for you. But I don't think you deserve to roam the streets. What what they did was just disgusting. And these stab wounds weren't just little, like, stab wounds or nicks. Like, they were four inches deep. They were deep. There were defensive wounds. She tried fighting for her life. And they deserve to rot. I don't care how sorry they are. I don't care how much Brian is able to understand what he did. At the end of the day, you made a decision and you can't take it back. So... Folks, make sure you know who your friends are. Make sure you trust the right people. I know it's really hard to do. And I don't know. I don't know what else to say about this. But really think about the things you do and think about your friends and really evaluate who you surround yourself with. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode, the first episode of Ghoultober. Make sure you check out the next episode this Friday at 8 a.m. to see what fright awaits you guys. Um, continue to check out my podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. I'm on iHeartRadio now, which is pretty cool. And definitely go check out my Instagram, crimeghoul underscore, so you can see pictures from the case. Um, so you can get a better understanding of the crime scene and we can chat on there if you'd like. DM me, please. I love friends and I love talking about this stuff. So don't be a stranger. So until Friday, stay safe, my friends, and make great decisions. And yeah, I'm so happy you listened. All right. I'll see you later. Happy Monday. Goodbye.